Welcome to Climate Insiders, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the climate revolution. My name is Johan Berno, and I'm on a mission to shake things up. It is time we get serious and address this climate crisis. In each episode, I'll provide a platform for top climate thinkers, entrepreneurs, and investors to share their insights, innovations, and contrarian views. Let's learn from visionary thought leaders and hear their ideas that can profoundly reshape society and bring us one step closer to a sustainable world. In today's show, I'm receiving Robert Hoglund, one of the top experts in carbon dioxide removal, or CDR. He manages the Milky Wired Climate Transformation Fund and co-founded the CDR market overview, CDR.FYI. This discussion is perfect for those who are just getting started or want to explore the state of CDR in more depth. We cover the various forms of CDR technology, which one is ahead of the game today and why that might change soon, the role of governments in driving the industry, price predictions of the carbon price, the impact of oil and gas and whether they are hindering progress. And we discuss how providing more data through platforms like CDR.FYI and spicing up the industry through competitions like the X price challenge can break that glass ceiling for CDR and truly accelerate its growth. Let's go. All right. So Robert, it's great to have you in Climate Insiders. Welcome. Thanks. Good to be here. All right, so how would your best friend finish the sentence, Robert is dot, dot, dot? Um, curious person trying to solve difficult problems. Mm-hmm. Currently in climate. Currently in climate. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk a lot about climate and specifically with carbon removal and CDR. And we're going to use this opportunity to have one of you, you know, one of the leading experts in that field, uh, at least in Europe, to answer all the hot questions that I'm, you know, dying to ask, you know, from an investor lens, but also entrepreneur lens. And let's start spiky because this is quite timely. Why did you decide to attend COP28 deemed as the big oil conference? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, some people are boycotting, but I think they're still in the minority. The COP meetings are the best avenue for getting international progress. It's not that I'm going to negotiate for, for a country, but it's a great opportunity to meet a lot of other people and uh, make progress on, on climate. I don't think that me participating uh, sort of helps the oil industry or helps oil countries in any way. I don't do that, make that analysis. What could realistically be achieved, though? Do you have hopes? In terms of the negotiations, what they're going to lead to, uh, I'm not... The, the expert to answer how influential this COP will be. I mean, we'll certainly make uh, progress on the uh, loss and damage fund, for example, and the global stock take and, and countries updating their their, uh, their targets. And I mean, it is incremental progress. So if you go back to Paris, you could see what world were we heading towards with the climate targets where we had then. Then it was closer to three degrees. Now, if all countries reach the targets that they have set, uh, we're going to reach 1.8 degrees or so. So it's actually a huge progress in, in terms of targets and a lot of countries are also making progress in reducing their emissions even though on a global level uh, emissions are not reduced uh, it's still kept increasing but if you look at uh, countries um, like the US and the European Union and um, also like the United Kingdom for example that have quite ambitious targets and have started to, to reduce emissions and, and then sort of are on a path that there, there's a lot of progress happening and uh, you also see targets being sharpened, not the other way around. Although, if, of course, it could be backtracked on, on that side as well. But yeah, I, I, I am kind of optimistic in one way, right? So mm-hmm. uh, we're not going to reach the 1.5 degree target. I mean, seems very unlikely, but, but things are, are still looking brighter than they, they did, I would say. 
Yeah, we're technically already past the 1.5. I mean, uh, you just have to read the IPCC reports. You know, you're on, you're out, and you know that it's not trending so well. But hopefully, we have a, a ecosystem called the CDR ecosystem that can solve us. <laughs> Or at least, actually, one of the biggest arguments against the carbon removal community is the concern that funding carbon removal is distracting us from actually reducing emissions. In other words, and you've spoken about this, we continue polluting and emitting like crazy. And um, because we can remove afterwards, uh, you know, we can clean our hands. This yeah. is known as the mitigation deterrence yeah. or, uh, you know, moral hazard. W what do you generally say to this? If you were kind of to compact... No, it, could. Uh, it could, for sure. Uh, and I wrote a paper with Carbon Gap and then Eli Mitchell-Larsson and, and, and Sylvain Lorenz uh, just a couple of months back on, on sort of how to counter mitigation deterrence. And it's entirely mm. possible, but there's things that we can do. So it's also important to remember that this goes for a lot of things. So you could also use, I mean, let's say the new drug Ozempic that uh, helps people lose weight. That could be used to, uh, you know, people have a very unhealthy lifestyle for decades because they know they can use the drug. But it's not an argument against the drug, like you shouldn't use it or that you should discontinue the drug or something like that. It's just an argument that, you know, you should have better plans than that. And then the same for, for carbon removal, uh, things like only using like-for-like -like removal. So if you have fossil emissions, you would need to permanently remove that to, to make a sort of net zero claim and say that you're not having a continued uh, effect on, on, on warming. And also in the short to medium term, have separate targets so that you when you deploy carbon removal don't distract from um, from the emission reductions and also don't count on a huge amount of carbon removal to be cheap and readily available later on you should sort of count on that it will be expensive and, and quite limited and, and sort of plan accordingly basically yeah and and there's also the difference between i wanted to plant that see it right off the bat the difference between cdr and carbon capture it confuses uh, the hell out of out of everyone right those two mm. words removing versus capturing because technically if you remove carbon you somewhat capture it um you know to do something with it so uh, could you kind of try to clear things out the floor and tell why those two things are different yeah um the wording doesn't imply they're different but they have different meaning right now so carbon capture is, is when you take co2 from uh, a source fossil source like cement production like a coal power plant uh, like iron production and you capture that co2 that came from a from a fossil source and or like a, a non-natural source and, and you you capture it and store it or you use it in some way whereas carbon removal is you take that co2 from the atmosphere so you're reducing the co2 level in the atmosphere or relatively reducing it at least and, and then storing it in a uh, in a durable way so anthropogenically like done by humans taking co2 out of the atmosphere and durably storing it that's basically the definition of uh, of carbon removal right and and one part of the carbon capture is or sub-segment is the DAC, the direct air capture that has excited a lot of investors vcs the entire the media over the last couple of years what needs to happen for DAC to to turn into a real scalable solution and reach gigaton scale carbon removal we need to deploy it at some meaningful scale for the solve the technology development to to get kickstarted and then we can start to bring costs down so most DAC approaches have been existing in the lab or in a, like a very small first of a kind um, application so Climeworks had uh, 4,000 tons per year plant now heirloom has a 1,000 year 
with a very different technology plant. And, and there's many, many companies that will deploy kind of those sizes, maybe even smaller, uh, bring, getting out of the lab and actually trying it in the real world. And, and even though you can make a lot of progress kind of more in the lab and with the kind of basic research, you have to do it at some meaningful scale. And others are planning to do it on a megaton scale, um, carbon engineering technology being used for uh, 500,000 tons and, and, and plant and, uh, and also Climeworks and Heirloom is probably going to do the 1 million ton plant with the, the DAC hubs. So once you get to that kind of scale, you, you see much easier what needs to be done also to, uh, to reduce costs and, and to see if it's is it viable or not. So start doing it and, uh, and at the same time also find uh, alternative ways because we're still coming up with a lot of new ideas. So I, I work with uh, Milky Wire and the Climate Transformation Fund where we also, companies donate to the fund and we support solutions, kind of like a little bit altruistic buyer of cover removal. So like Klarna and Spotify and others are, are donating to this fund and we supported, I think it was eight cover removal solutions last year uh, being the first buyer of most of them and, and many of those were new direct air capture ideas. So testing like all, all of them have their own version of like what they're doing. So there's a lot of new basic ideas to be tried out. All right. And so I see a lot of, so from a neutral stance, right? A lot of a CDR camp pointing the finger at dark DAC saying that's completely unrealistic. There's no unit economics. And then the DAC guys saying, well, we just need that missing brick in that climate wall, which is cheap energy generation uh, for that to be real. And then as soon as we hit that threshold, it's going to go ballistic, right? We're going to see DAC projects popping front and center. You support, you're neutral here. You support both type of projects. Yeah, we need a portfolio approach. Like all carbon removal solutions hit some kind of, if not wall, then at least like an uphill battle after a while. There's only so much waste biomass you can use for biochar or, or biomass burial. And there's only so much space in the ocean for like macroalgae, etc. And has rock weathering and you need to open new mines and, and, and get a lot of rock and grind it up. And it becomes more difficult at some scale. And, and that's why we also need a portfolio uh, and, and do a lot of different different methods and that might suit also different geographies better so like in the desert you might be able to get very very cheap solar power and, and maybe in the north of canada or greenland you might have very very cheap wind power and direct air capture can make a lot of sense in those conditions especially if it works well with intermittent energy and in those cases it could be like the absolutely best thing to do in those geographies and another thing with, with DAC and other uh, solutions that that get a, a pure stream of, of CO2 is that uh, that can also be used for other things. So like, you know, fuels or, or plastics, and, and we can get more into that, but there's there's that benefit of those solutions as well. Yeah. So it's important that you, you take a portfolio approach. You mentioned a whole bunch of them. Is there one that really stands out today? If we were to take a, a snapshot of one that's demonstrated scale and all the benefits of long-term carbon removal, so the permanence, is there one technology that stands out today? No, like you can, you can look at it from different ways and you can say that, well, Bioshore is dominating deliveries mm -hmm. right now because that's the thing that you could quickly and easily do and, and, and sort of scale up without having to have very long cycles so that's that's dominating but uh peter olivier he works at undo carbon but it's been working with bioshar before it's, it's a great follow in the cdr space he wrote a funny tweet today that saying like well in 2020s uh, bioshar uh, 80 the 85 percent bioshar cdr market and then in 2030 it's it's the 
that uh, the 20, um, the dominated by enhanced rock weather and, and then the, four, the 2040s, mm. the CDR market dominated by ocean alkalinity enhancement. Like, you know, they might switch, right? Like, just because Bioshore is a leader now, doesn't have to be in, in, in 10 years. And uh, if enhanced rock weathering becomes a leader, it might also be surpassed, right? So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's something that's going to shift and we'll, we'll know a lot more when we do it at scale and see what is... Um, you know, most feasible in terms of cost, but also other things. What, what makes biochar the winner today? Is it just the fact that it's pyrolysis and fairly easy, low entry, uh, very to entry energy efficiency? What, what what makes it the winner today? Or just just a critical size, right, of projects that have been able to deliver on it? Yeah, it's not that difficult to make. <laughs> Right, you can uh, you can make it yourself even, or like an artisanal scale, or you could buy a, a pyrolysis unit. It's a it's a technology that already exists. You could buy it from Alibaba, basically, you know, like a, or or an, like a more um, uh, another developer in, in Europe, etc., has has kind of more expensive machines and, and get started, right? And there was a lot of companies that were making Bioshar already before, but sort of were scaling up their operations to to sell carbon removal credits and so on. As far as I know, there's a, a shortage, right, on suppliers of those machines, and they cannot reach yeah. scale, you know, fully. And, and those running first, those machines, it's a difficulty. You came up to 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 some uh, leader position, but then, yeah, I think that there's a backlog now. Uh, it takes 18 months, I heard. I don't know if it's true to get a pyrolysis right. unit. So, you know, the, the initial burst in Bioshore might not be continued in the same growth trajectory because of supply chain issues. And that's another interesting right. thing. Like, I mean, money is not the only limiting factor for, for carbon removal, although it's very important like uh, you would run into a lot of other issues as well and, and let's use since we're talking about biochar we can come back and uh, backpedal a bit on the other sets of technologies biochar claims to have permanence not just a short-term permanence but permanence period what does that mean how can carbon be permanently trapped anyways there's some difference in the word how permanent is used so if you're talking about permanent then means forever then it's very very high bar right then if you talk about permanence and degrees of permanence it gets a little bit more kind of what are you talking about durability might be a better word like the, the high durability and kind of low durability and um what's the expected lifetime of uh, uh, of, of the carbon storage so so biochar the, the best understanding from the sort of meta studies is to try is more that uh, it is degrading and, and being lost back to the atmosphere after um after some time but uh, for example, the best available knowledge was that uh, under you know, average conditions, uh, you would lose 20% after 100 years and, 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 and 50% after 500 years. But there's also new science looking, sort of pointing to that it might actually be that 80% is essentially permanent. But there's a need for more and uh, more knowledge on that. But it looks like it's going to be at least hundreds of years while you have that degrading or more. Right, or maybe it's actually this this eighty percent permanent. But there's a, more studies coming up. As opposed to replanting forests, which has very low permanence, we know that it's just a, a temporary win, and then it degrades very quickly. Well, it has a risk reversal. Like it, forests can stand for thousands of years as well. So I mean, they're not necessarily temporary. They're not inherently temporary. Like there's a difference between things that are inherently temporary, like uh, where you just wait ten years with cutting down your forest, and then say that that's stored or or you put some biomass just dig down biomass and it's not like just in the top soil it degrades over 10 years or so that's like inherently temporary and then you think you have things that have um just a high risk of reversal 
watch, but it could stay forever, basically. And and so our, so uh, awesome. Th- thanks for the the difference, permanence, durability, and another set of technology that is very promising is. But there's all sorts. There's enhanced weathering, rocks using, um, and and the problem of this is feedstock, right? So the amount of uh, mines, and you're talking about mines, so we need to reopen mines to basically source the feedstock and then maybe crush the rocks or use all sorts of methodologies to get this rich scale. Or is the emissions that are happening in the process of exploiting the mine going to counterbalance or or we're almost going to letting the genie out of the bottle and not fully in control of what could happen afterwards um no it, it can definitely reach scale so it, it's more um a, a question of like where would you want to open mines where does it make sense uh, and how far can you transport it because uh, uh, when you, once you have to transport it very long, especially with road traffic and the economics and, and also the emissions if you use um, fossil transportation, it starts to get bad. But it's not, even if even with today's technology in, in mining and, uh, and transportation, it's still just a small part of that LCA, the actual emissions in the process. Uh, and when you get kind of more electrified, everything, then the emissions become very, very, very small part. And it's definitely scalable. Like it's more now enhanced rock weathering is, is figuring out how to do the measurement in a, in a way that uh, is secure and actually know what's happening and might differ in different places and, and how can you really say how much is removed and how fast, etc. And that's being worked on by a lot of different companies and scientists and we're getting closer and closer uh, to to understanding that. So it's still not on a on a level where you just say like, okay, let's just, let's just go, let's let's you know let's just deploy as much rock as we can. It's more in the, in the place where we're exploring and testing it and, and learning more and, and but you know gearing up for for future scale. Yeah. There's also I had a conversation with um you know an investor friend and he was describing the climate tech as a sort of series of miracles. It's a bit of a dominoes effect of miracles, and one of the holy grails I guess in the climate tech space is cheap unlimited energy forever aka nuclear fusion that would be that domino that kicks in the cdr dominoes at an accelerated rate do you see a lot of projects that are just dependent on that brick you know the technological brick to to unveil um, be it fusion or smrs the small modular fission reactors or even hydrogen or all sorts other sorts of, of cheap energy to be the 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 training point for the cdr industry yeah, cheap energy is, I think, the, the turning point for a lot of climate tech, right? Like also alternative fuels and so many different things that um, just get so much easier if, if you have very cheap energy. Then, then that's the that's the number one thing probably that you need to to achieve to to get um, uh, to solve climate change faster, right? Like, uh, and it goes for CDR as well. And yeah, I, I think the fusion, you know, maybe, but even if the fuel is, is basically free, it might still cost a lot and, and a lot of other things. Um, so I don't know about the, the cost projections but uh, look at DAC for example a lot of DAC approaches need some level of heat and could be actually quite good to to pair with nuclear so if you're going to do direct mm-hmm. DAC capture at scale you might build nuclear plants just for DAC like purposely built nuclear plant that's not even delivering to the grid or like you know just running DAC plants 24-7 huge nuclear plants right uh, that's what we're going to look at and uh, for direct air capture also you need a purposely built energy because you can't just take it from the grid where where it's replacing uh, fossil fuels so um scaling that also means scaling energy for sure 
And so that takes us to the, the price question, which is how do you finance a project like this that builds up a nuclear plant just to, to proceed with that so that you can sell your carbon credits or whatever you extract on the market? Yeah, no, so let's talk about price for a minute. Is Today, it's hyper-volatile, right? If you take the matrix of, uh, the, you know, the carbon market, um, it oscillates from $100 to $4,000 as you, you, you know, for, for direct air capture, uh, Climeworks. Who sets those prices anyways? It's extremely confusing for both the startup entrepreneurs that are trying to start a project and say, well, it's so volatile, I can also speculate. Also, the investors that are running a, an assessment and trying to build you know, financial projections. So what do, you, what do you say to them? How do you set your price? It's not price as much as cost. And it's not really volatile. It's just that different approaches are at different stages. There was an artwork uh, that I saw in, um, in a sort of art hall many years ago where, where an artist had made like a, a power drilling machine like by himself, by hand. Like he made all the steps and documented it. And, and uh, uh, then he put like a receipt next to it with everything that he'd done and all the hours and, and the material. And I think it costs, you know, like $30,000 or something, you know, that uh, uh, with, with a normal average salary, basically. And then he went to the, the store and bought like one for $15 and hung next to it with the receipt. And the little bit same with, like, yeah, of course, DAC is going to cost like $2,000 per ton when you basically build your own drilling machine, like from scratch, and there's a prototype. And that's what the companies are paying. They're paying you with, with these early, early, early wires. Like, they're paying for the prototype. They're paying for that first of a kind power drill, <laughs> basically. That's not price. Like, it's, it's not, doesn't mean there's a market for power drills at like $30,000 a piece. Like, just because someone was maybe willing to, to finance a prototype. And the same with, with DAC. So, I mean, you should see it as a proto market where there, there's some altruistic buyers, basically, that, or some are maybe not altruistic, but still want to contribute very early on to, to kickstart the, the, the industry and, and are willing to basically pay uh, the cost of developing it very early on. Um, but uh, that's very different from kind of what uh, a market at scale and what kind of willingness to pay there are at scale. That's a completely different thing. That's interesting what you're saying. That it's altruism is the excitement that they get about one particular set of technologies that dictates their willingness to pay a certain price. So you're saying that DAC seems more appealing, more sexy, more futuristic. So they were willing to pay a super premium versus uh, biochar, for example. Not really. It's just that biochar doesn't cost that today. It costs only $150 per ton. So that's what you pay. And the prototype for that costs much more. So that's what you pay. You pay what it costs. Like it's not it's not that you're valuing that more. It's just that it costs more, <laughs> basically, right? Yeah. And, and so let, let's kind of play a game of, of price predictions. It's very difficult. Everyone say that if we set that price, the CDR market will explode. And uh, Microsoft also claimed that the carbon voluntary market would go down to $100 a ton. Um, so kind of everyone is going with their own price predictions. Do you have your own intuition here? How is this going to evolve in the next short term, midterm, long term? I think it certainly is possible for a lot of methods to deliver in the 100 to 200 dollar ton sort of bracket um, at scale and, and a little bit further down the road. So I would expect permanent or very durable cover removal to be in that kind of 100 to 200 dollars, like post 2030. Um, maybe a little bit higher in the beginning, but then you know um, maybe a little bit lower at, at the end. 
I don't think below $100 for most methods is going to be very, you know, possible. But things like biomass burial and might be, you know, significantly cheaper. And then it's interesting what happens. Are, are they just making a great profit? Or, like, how's the market dynamics going to work? Uh, is no one going to buy DAC and everyone's just going to do biomass removal first? Um, that, that, that's going to be interesting to see. And from a regulatory perspective, are you advising the regulators to set a certain price or a bracket? No, I don't think it. it the regulators are not setting the price, right? Currently, what regulators or let's say governments instead are doing, on the one hand, doing things like the US with a 45Q, where there is a um, incentive being paid, which is less than the cost today. It's $180 for, for direct air capture. Uh, and then they're doing direct procurement a bit. And then you basically pay, pay the cost. And uh, Sweden and Denmark is also doing kind of reverse auctioning with BEX and, and paying part of the cost. So um, it, it's not really governments that set the, the price. Uh, and if, if carbon removal is included in the European trading system and other cap and trade systems, it's also more kind of the, the market and, and the actual cost that would set the price and, and also what the alternative is. So uh, since we're talking about regulations, let's talk about politics. Why do this seem so ineffective? And, and what are the main asks of the CDR community to make it a bit more effective? <laughs> I'm not so sure policy is ineffective as more as non-existent in many cases, right? So it's uh, it's not that uh, they introduced a lot of bad policies on carbon removal or anything like that. Not yet, at least. You know, might have that kind of criticism later later on. Um, the U.S. is doing a lot, and I think like uh, if if other countries were to copy the kind of measures, uh, maybe not straight, but kind of in, in terms of scale and relative scale that the U.S. have done for carbon removal, I think that would be on the kind of order of magnitude that would be be needed. So they have the 45Q and, and kind of direct support. They have um, direct air capture hubs where the government goes in and pays a large part of that. Um, and going back to the question, who would pay for nuclear? Like, that, of course, you're not going to build a huge nuclear power plant just because you hope there's a market for your, uh, your direct air capture tons, right? Government needs to be involved either directly financing it or mandating uh, a, a market for you have to buy carbon removal for you last 10% or something so you know that actually is a, a market. So um, those kind of things, if that happens on, on a broader scale, to, to go from the extremely small, you know, I think a really core message is that you can't go from like a few hundred thousand tons removed to a, like a, a few billion tons removed in, in less than a few decades. Like you just can't do it. Like you need permits, you need land, you need supply chains to be built up, you need people to be trained. Like uh, the growth rate of the industry can't be like thousands of percent per year. Like year, like it's just not possible. So that's why we have to start now. It shouldn't be like a, a priority of, of governments compared to other things, but it should be one thing. You know, just like you know, governments are, are giving support to hydrogen or, or geothermal, or, uh, so like other technologies, like uh, CDR also needs uh, needs support. And uh, it's interesting that you're looking at a few decades. A few decades could be very, very long, right? So definitely taking us past the 2050, where we're supposed to rock bottom on on you know, on to or at least go to net zero. And it, it, one thing that keeps coming up is the role of oil and gas. Oil and gas, you know, they, as an in, entire industry, they have the infrastructure, they have the know-how, they have the role to play. They could issue their permits. They have access to those regions where there's a lot of, you know, emissions being being produced. What is, in your opinion, the role that they have to play um, 
And as we were talking about talk, COP28, a lot of people are saying that is there is it's a travesty. You know, they're using the CDR space as just a, a little bit of R and D pocket money to cover up the mm. continuation of the extraction that they're doing. What do you say to that? So CDR can definitely be used in that way. And you, you could criticize companies and you should criticize companies if they're doing that. What you need to ask them for is more like, what, what's your plan? Like, are you, are you planning to continue with oil production at, at today's level? Or like, then CDR is not going to cut it. You can't just offset 100% of your, your oil emission. The problem is on a company level, like they might all claim to be that what we're going to produce the last 10% of oil, you know? Like, everyone says that. And then it's like, yeah, there is a role for oil, even at net zero. There are certain applications. It might actually be the best use for, for aviation, for example, and you use permanent car removal. Electrofuels is way more expensive than um, offsetting uh, with, car, with permanent car removal, for example. It might change with new technology, but, you know, uh, and, and then there are other things where, where there's a small role for oil. But every company could be claiming that we're going to, have that small role and, and like mm. all the others can go out of business because we have the like in norway they might say like we have the lowest emission intensity of producing oil or like saudi arabia might say like well we are the cheapest oil so we're going to be the, the last man standing etc so i think that's very difficult and it's also difficult like this is also my expertise in the kind of geopolitics and, and how to you know advise companies and the oil sector but it's interesting to see like what are they doing they're not investing in renewable energy but also out, maybe for some they think it's outside of their expertise their others are much better at building like a renewable energy company so they prefer to try to be the last one standing or maybe do stock buybacks and, and sort of slowly dismantle themselves and giving the money back to the shareholders is that wrong like depends on what the shareholders do with the money it's interesting it's kind of complicated actually and also shows why there's a need for regulation like like a carbon take back obligation like saying that if you're going to continue selling oil not just producing but the one that's selling it so it doesn't matter if it comes from another country then you have to store part of that permanently and, and it's sort of stock with maybe one percent and then then go all the way to 100 percent uh, it doesn't solve everything like in, in terms of you know you can still be some mitigation deterrence but i think in terms of like compromises and, and what might work i think a carbon tapering obligation where you say that well start with one percent and then 100 percent is going to be permanent removed by 2050 it's a great way of, of actually uh, having boundaries for the, the oil industry as, as well are you personally working with oil and gas? Mm, no, I'm not working with any any oil or you know, gas company. I mean, I've, I've talked to, to oil companies for sure. Um, uh, like, uh, talked about carbon removal technologies, etc. But I don't have any current customer or anything like that. That's oil company. And one of the, I, I see the, the intertwining, right, of fossil fuels, the big oil and governments as one of the biggest hindering factors. I mean, we we're saying with COP28, where the incentives are not really aligned to lay out very ambitious regulations. We're starting to see it with a CDR space, right? Where they try to get, you know, a bit of ownership. They get on the tech cap table of those companies to keep an eye on what's happening. But there's no real alignment on whether they really want to press the gas pedal to scale those technologies. And, and I see that as, a, you know, the CDR ecosystem is at the mercy 
of big oil on prices, regulations, permits. What can we do about it, if anything? Well, it's, it's policy is the final solution, right? Like things like the carbon taper obligation is saying like, well, we're going to phase out oil production in this country or it's going to be 100% uh, removed, basically. Like that's kind of the things that's needed. I've, individual companies, I don't think they can be sort of trusted to give up their whole business or like ex- expected to. It's going to be very difficult. The CDR industry, um, I mean, you should be careful, especially on communications and never... There's a lot of things that could go wrong. And you should never give this sort of impression that the oil industry at today's scale could, could or anywhere close to today's scale could be continued, right? We need, and this is an interesting distinction. We don't, it's also important to say that we need to face like out fossil fuels, you know, mm-hmm. save maybe a very small part. It's not just reducing emissions. We actually also need, there's no way that we can continue at any close to the level. So, so it's a, most fossil fuels needs to be gone. And as long, you need to be clear about that as the CDR industry as well, and not just talk about, um, yeah, em, emission reductions in general, or you need to be clear on that, I think. How do we crack this? I mean, this is such a difficult problem. Is we we need ten percent the residual one, you know, for a certain set of, of industries, but the ninety percent we need to eliminate very quickly. It's a very lucrative, very powerful, very controlling industry. Do you have any clue here, guidance or pointers, so that you know collectively we could accelerate that phasing out? I mean, of course, there's. I mean, the EU has a very clear plan with the, there's a European emission trading system, and now it's also Do being they? expanded. Oh yes, like now all road traffic is coming in as well under the ETS in the ESR, for example, um, and it's it's all going to be needing allowances basically, and those are going to be phased down to zero, and that forces out all emissions, or they wouldn't have to buy. Uh, hopefully, the permanent recovery removal for the last part, if if that is introduced in the ETS. So that kind of policy, where you know, with our cap and trade, I don't think carbon taxes cut it because there's a lot of elasticity uh, as well. So like, uh, people might just pay more, right? Uh, and in Sweden, for example, where I'm from, uh, gas prices are I don't know, but at least double the US or something. And, uh, people drive less, but they they still drive their gas car. It's not like it it's own on its own just phases out. Even though it's a really high carbon tax in Sweden, it doesn't on its own phase out. Uh, so that's a cap and trade. I think uh, it's a good solution and, and carbon take back obligation. Another one. Similar. Can I take a counter example to that? I mean, it's amazing that you are bumping up the prices to sort of uh, you know alter behaviors. The counter example to it is uh, smoking in in France, for example. I think it's in the world is the highest price per cigarette and yet a third of people between 15 and 25 smoke right it's almost yeah. a cultural thing it's entrenched in the culture and it still seems cool so there's really um an aspect to we need to push you know through media influencers wh- whoever right to set the to point the finger as saying this is the problem fossil fuel big oil is the problem they're slowing things down here. They're really not trying to accelerate things. And I don't know if the governments that are so intertwined, you know, in the yeah, interests yeah. of fossil fuel are neutral enough to, to you know, make a leap in new regulations. I'll give you an example. You know, I've done a bit of research and it looks like the subsidies to fossil fuel industry is still at the peak, right? It's sky high. We're subsidizing. When I say subsidizing is not just uh, with a hope of return on investment, it's straight subsidies. $13 million per minute, right? You know, on, on, on fossil fuels, $4 trillion per year. And that is this is not slowing down. And you would be surprised who is actually subsidizing. You know, most of the countries like Sweden, France, they're pointing the finger at the all the biggest subsidizers. It feels like the it's the chicken or the egg here, you know? That depends on what you mean with subsidies. And like, uh, for example, Sweden 
has a really high tax on uh, carbon tax that is mostly applied on on fuels, fossil fuels like uh, gasoline, diesel, etc. Uh, so it, it is heavily taxing them, and then like air traffic is not taxed like uh, jet fuel, but that's part of the Chicago Convention, and like it's a huge international thing, right? Like so that that's a subsidy, and then there are certain subsidies for like uh, um, agriculture use of diesel, etc. So like there are uh, things like that, but yeah, I, I don't think taxes is enough. Yeah, as you say, like the elasticity is. Really Really high in, in France for, for smoking. So cap and trade is much better. You could say like, well, we're going to re- reduce the amount of cigarettes sold in, in France all the way to down, uh, down zero. Then yeah, you, you have it's going to decrease. So uh, yeah, it's not enough with uh, the stick. You need to to actually have something to to, to select uh, to etc. To to change to. But I think also all these companies you can't speak of them as distinct from from uh, from the state because like the biggest uh, fossil fuel companies are state owned. Like, Gazprom, Saudi Aramco, like uh, Petrobras, etc. Like there, there's so many in China as well that are either state-owned or like controlled, and, and it's uh, not really private companies in the, in the kind of traditional way. And so, yeah, you're 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 bringing out something very important is to that care, you know, to inspire, to lay out a vision that be, that that seems sexy, that seems appealing, uh, is one way to do it. And I think the climate tech space is trying to do this, right? And it's succeeding. And what you're personally doing with CDR.FYI is one great way to do this. You're kind of collecting a bunch of data to show the trend and then sexifying the space, or at least showing it's going somewhere. Could you tell us a bit more about the, the CDR.FYI and maybe some of the results that you've derived from it? So that's something that started as a simple data set, Google Sheet, tracking all the transactions in the carbon removal space. And now it's a website with a lot of people working on it. So I'm, I'm co-founder, but now it's a whole team. And just tracking all the, the pre-purchases and off-take agreements and also deliveries of permanent carbon removal or very durable. So buy, share, and upwards. And it's still very early, but you see a lot of growth from very small levels. So mm-hmm. there is a number of um, number of companies, like a few hundred, that have started buying Cover Mobile, and it's a small group of them have started buying kind of more uh, significant levels. And most of them are kind of high profit, low emission companies, like uh, in the banking, finance, software, etc. That could do it, and could could be expected to actually pay for the externalities that they cost because they can they can afford it. They can afford to 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 support these new technologies, whereas other sectors need to pay use the money internally to, to reduce emissions they can't pay a lot of things outside uh, so so that makes a lot of sense so that's one of the things that you could see with CDRFRI. Um, but I, I think my main message is, is always that you know we need also more buyers uh, to, to come in uh, to to start taking the responsibility and there's plenty of companies that could afford to to do something about the, the externalities and, and start supporting it and another way to sexify it is to turn that into a competition, right? So leveraging, mm-hmm. and I think the X Prize uh, Carbon Removal Challenge is doing this phenomenally. So a bit of context, right? So Elon Musk has decided to fund and put in a uh, hundred million dollars to the CDR project that would manage a, a thousand, I believe, a thousand tons per year, starting from yeah. next year, and then with a clear trajectory of reaching a million tons per year. I guess in the next couple of years. What do you think of this? Is this just PR, a PR stunt, or it's really boosting the the space? No, it's a, it's a great initiative, and hundreds of companies, uh, thousands even, but hundreds of serious companies have, have applied, and um, it's it's been a great injection. 
uh, into the space starting with two years ago now i think that was, it was quite important like one of the really important early milestones for for cover removal showing that there is someone there's there are entities that that will support this at this early stage that will do help the technology development so so that's super important for people that are working in their garage or in their university lab and might not you know have a lot of capabilities to take it further and this becomes the 15 milestone awards you know becomes super important for these these companies that were awarded them to, to actually go to the next step yeah similarly as, as offtake agreements and pre-purchases and interest of reality check a thousand tons a year next year it doesn't seem that high from sort of a, a, a figure, you, how many how many projects do you think can realistically claim that today? That have removed a thousand tons. Yeah, if any. <laughs> well, it's mostly Bioshar products, and, and then like Climeworks and, and Charm. And let's see, we can just go into CDRFYI here and um, look at tons delivered. So yeah, on the first ten, there's nine Bioshar and one Bio Oil, and then. Mostly Bioshar, so about 20 companies have done it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we're at a very early stage, right? It's solar panels in the 70s, basically. We have Jimmy Carter putting up the solar panels now, and it's like, oh, cool, this new technology. Like, uh, it might become something if we put some money into it. So it takes me to, as an investor, to that next question is, is this once VC backable? If you're solar panel in the 70s and you know it's going to take a, a couple of decades has to go even faster than solar panels maybe it's in the 80s <laughs> solar panels. but still you know uh Amy carter probably put that out in i don't know 78 79 yeah i think you know is it vc backable or not are you going to get a quick return like it depends on if you sell it to someone else but uh it's uh, it takes time to, to reach a, a mass market of course but we're going to need it and some of these companies are going to have technologies that are much better than others and are much lower cost and there's significant differences between different cover removal companies so there's definitely a great business case for those that have the best technologies for sure so some of those companies will do very well and, and their investors will will as well the power law and the hockey stick growth can definitely apply to cdr technology well thanks so much robert this has been great and super insightful to follow your journey cdr fyi everyone will link everything in the show notes so you can get access to all this and to all of you as always thanks for tuning in thanks if you haven't already sign up for my weekly newsletter along with receiving updates about each new episode you will also get one actionable insight every saturday to boost your career fund or startup my newsletter is value-packed authentic and full of unique insights this newsletter is also the best way to join our growing community of climate investors we found that building a community is probably the ultimate force multiplier and it gives us the momentum we need to create profound change Let's share and collaborate. I'm just here to empower you to get started and set you on a path to success so our collective ideas can flourish and expand. Come join us to drive huge impacts.